0: A creature is washed up on the beach, scaring three local women. Could this creature be evidence of alien DNA mutation? Or could their origin have been older and part of a radioactive experiment in an ancient city, ultimately leading to its doom? Most likely not, but let's find out. Hi, hello and welcome to Digging Up Ancient Aliens. This is the podcast where we examine the strange claims about alternative history and ancient aliens in popular media. Do their claims hold water to an archaeologist, or are there better explanations out there? I'm your host, Frederick, and this is episode 38, and it's good to be back from my little vacation here. I'm feeling well-rested, and it's time to dig up some more dirt on the ancient alien theories. This time I watched the episode called Aliens and Monsters. The second episode from season 3, initially aired in August 2011. As the episode name might hint, it deals with monsters in ancient texts and How they are evidence of aliens mixing with DNA trying to create strange monster hybrids. While we could talk a bit about everything they bring up, ranging from the Loch Ness monster to the Indian god Garuda, I've decided that we should focus our attention solving two things. The Montak monster and the claim of radiation in Mohenjo-Daro. So strap in, because this will be a quite wild ride. As usual, you find sources, resources, and reading suggestions on our website, diggingupancientaliens.com. There you also find contact info if you notice any mistakes or have any suggestions, and if you like the podcast. I would appreciate if you left one of those fancy five-star reviews that I heard so much about. Now that we've finished with our preparations, let's dig into the episode. The first thing we encounter in this episode is a modern mystery. Well, we will soon learn it's not only a mystery if you don't really look for an answer. You might have heard about this one, the Montak monster. The ancient alien expert, to use that term loose and dangerous, described this creature as follows. It actually uh, looked like a hybrid creature that had the claws of a raccoon
1: and possibly the beak of a bird. And the body, perhaps, of a dog, a very unusual creature, a photograph was taken and circulated. It started popping up all over the internet.
0: It went viral. Now, that quote is from Franklin Rule, who had a PhD in theoretical nuclear physics. Another example that degree doesn't protect you from bad ideas. He is now unfortunately deceased. But if you don't remember, this monster was discovered by three women on July 13, 2008, on a beach in Montauk, New York. The carcass is furless, with finger-like paws, and what uh, some claim to be a beak, but with a sharp-looking teeth in it. And looking at the picture available, it's not surprising that people believe it to be some sort of monster. It it actually looks rather scary. The key to understanding this monster laying understanding taphonomy. In other words, understanding how a body decay after death. So when a creature, animal or human for that matter dies, post-mortem changes start to occur immediately. Different processes kick off and uh, starting to change the body's chemical composition and appearance. And within 21 days from the time of death, most carcasses show signs of bloating, discoloration, skin slippage, post-bloating, rupture and hair loss. And It's been noted that animal cadavers in water tend to loosen their fur rather quickly, which would explain the almost complete hair loss that we can see on the monster that's presented on the show. As for the beak that we heard mentioned by Franklin Rule, the explanation can be found in the fact that many of us don't know how our noses really are constructed. I did have a few courses in osteology and something that becomes apparent rather quickly is that the nose bone is really short and a large part of your nose is actually not a bone but cartilage there are different types of cartilage throughout your body but in your nose it's a type of membrane made out of fiber so if you take two fingers and close your nostrils and move your finger upward you will find a nasal bone and as you might note it ends close to the cranium the part that sticks out is basically mostly cartilage and you feel that it's quite soft and flexible if you start to move the outer part of your nose and this soft cartilage decay quickly after death and is in rare is quite rare in the archaeological record that we even find that we find craniums with this intact and the reason why we now have spent some time talking about the human snuts is that animals have the same construction on their sniffers. Sure, the shape might be slightly different, but the principle is the same. And if we apply a bit of osteology on the carcass, looking at the teeth and the nasal shape, the head looks like a perfect match for a raccoon. A conclusion paleozoologist Darren Nash and others seems to share. Add the long fingers, typical for a raccoon, and the tail, the identification appears to be secure enough. Unfortunately, an unknown individual is claimed to have removed the carcass, so while we might not have a definitely identification of the animal. I think we have something that is close enough. I don't think we have brought up much of Ockham's razor in the past. But uh, it is very much applicable here and, to be honest, in much of what we talk about uh, otherwise on the show too. And if you are unfamiliar with this idea, Occam's razor is a problem-solving principle stating that the simplest explanation is usually the correct one. It's also known as the love of uh, parsimony or the principle of parsimony. Occam's razor is named after William of Occam, a 14th century English philosopher. However, earlier philosophers like Duns Scotus and Durandus of St. Perclain had similar ideas to Occam. Occam's razor works by saying that we should prefer the most straightforward explanation when we have two or more competing explanations for a phenomenon. This is because the simplest explanation is the one that's most likely are to be correct. For example, if we see a footprint in the sand, we could explain it by saying it was made by a human, a dog, or a dinosaur. However, the simplest explanation is that it was made by a humans. That is because humans are only known creature to create a footprint. Now, Occam's razor is not always right. And there are times where the simplest explanation is not the correct one. However, this is a helpful principle to follow when you're trying to solve a problem like this. I also see a common mistake in the reporting of the Montac monster, asking the wrong kind of experts. While some reporters did try to reach out to people with a zoological background, these are not experts on dead animals. Honestly, it's more intricate than you think to identify a piece of bone and attribute it to the proper animal for example if you head over to the episodes web page you will find a picture of an animal cranium can you correctly identify the species without resorting to google but why is ancient alien talking about a dead raccoon that somehow made the news back in 2008 well i will let Giorgio answer that question for us
1: if the montauk monster is in fact a reality then that could mean that if we are able today to create some very bizarre creatures behind closed doors in labs all around the world, it is possible that our ancestors, especially the extraterrestrial ancestors, had the same capability. Because in ancient texts, we have numerous references Two monsters, bizarre beings that have been described in great detail.
0: So the monster is only a segue by a logical fallacy into the rest of the episode. From the beast on the Jersey Shore, we head over to Greek mythology. They talk about the chimera, the hydra and Cerberus and then refer to the gorgons as a monster. Now the gorgons were three sisters within Greek mythology, not a creature per se maybe a bit of hairsplitting in there but uh, we get the quote to suggest that all of these creatures were
1: nothing else but fantasy in my opinion doesn't really hold water because our ancestors weren't stupid they depicted what they saw we find these mixed hybrid beings all throughout egypt as sphinxes as griffins As bizarre creatures that, according to the ancient Egyptian texts, they did exist. They were not a fantasy of our ancestors' imagination.
0: Right. The idea that ancient people lacked words to describe things adequately or lacked imagination is plain silly. This whole section is just frivolous ideas. And to be honest, we humans are aces when it comes to dreaming something up. Our main advantage from an evolutionary perspective is that we can imagine things and concepts. While some ancient people believed that these creatures existed, there's no evidence that they really did. It's as people in the future would look back and think that we live in today thought, the, I don't know, witchers were real. While monsters are fun and can be fun parts of stories or games, they, they aren't real. Come on, <laughs> But it does not stop Van Daniken, Jonathan Young, or Philip Coppens from speculating how and why these creatures were created. And it seems to boil down to curiousness from the aliens trying to develop some sort of master hybrid for their gold mining or something. But we only get pure speculation, not that it will stop the experts from speculating on the creature's origin. And to find this, we need to travel across the world to the Indus Valley. Greetings, you have arrived at Mohenjo-Daro, an archaeological site in the Larkana district of southeastern Pakistan. This is far from the first time we have visited the site. The first time was back in episode 7 with Eric Palmgren. And if you want to listen to that episode, you will have to become a member of Digging Up Ancient Aliens. Don't worry, it's 100% free. It's pretty new. So the first 8 episodes can currently only be found at a member's portal. Don't worry, I won't use the power of paywall for our regular episode. Maybe some bonus content will end up there in the end, but I want this show to be as accessible as possible to everyone, no matter of financial status. We also visited Mohenjo Daro in episode 19 when we were looking at the nazi alien mythology you can go there if you don't want to sign up as a member mohenjo darrow is described by the cryptozoologist franklin rule as a modern city with parallel street advanced sewage system and toilets in every house to give rule some credit here this is kind of true Mohenjo-Daro was advanced for being constructed around 2500 BCE by people from the Harappan civilization, named after the site Harappa, located in Punjab, Pakistan. The name of the city of Mohenjo-Daro translates to roughly Mound of the Dead or Mound of Mohan in Sindhi, a language spoken in southeastern Pakistan. Seen there as a language seems to have spread in the historic sources uh, beginning around 900 CE. So the site's name is probably different from what the inhabitants would have called it since the Harappan culture did not develop writing. We don't have any evidence surviving of the name to our days. And even if there are some signs of proto in the script within Harappan civilization, there's not enough evidence, currently at least, to state that they had writing during this period. Mohenjo-Daro was, for the time, a very large city with, at its peak, roughly 40,000 inhabitants. And from the look of things, there seems to have been uh, sort of a city planning when constructing this town even if some parts grew organically but there is a clear structure and indeed on a larger scale over the time a thing that the inhabitants were quite intuitive about was the sewage system actually when you construct a large city you will have to deal with a couple of issues the two most important things are the water supply and the second running up really close there is human waste management and for the latter there have been many variations throughout the times ranging from a simple hole in the yard where you can that you would empty from time to time with buckets you have cesspools open drainage or just leaving it in the street and letting water wash it away down into the local river and all of these different methods have had their own sort of issues. Cesspools for example tend to explode and open drainage come with quite a smell. Also washing it down in the river can have uh, quite the consequences as London learned during the Great Stink in 1858. And in Mohenjo-Daro we find a semi-closed drainage system with a sophistication that was not really beaten until the Roman sewage systems thousands of years later. During excavations in Mohenjo-Daro a drainage system was discovered, typical going about 50 centimeters below street levels and having a minimum diameter of 15 centimeters. Now, these drains were usually covered with flagstones, wood, or other various covers. The sloping is around 2 cm per meter, which is not much, but with enough water pouring, the waste would have been moved down the pipes. Now, one question archaeologists ask ourselves about this system is, what was really supposed to go into the drain? Now many houses has a shallow basin of baked bricks connected to the drainage system. But in many of the homes we also find in the same room as the basin latrines that sit over a vertical chute. Some seem to aim for either the drain but on the outside of the house or a local cesspit. So was the drainage more for grey water left for Bathing, cleaning, cooking, etc. Or was it designed to wash away what's been deposited in the lavatory? But then again, not all the toilets were connected to the drains. It could be argued that if not everyone poured water in the gutter, the flow would be really too low and the stench would build up in the street. It might also be good to note here that some of the more immense palaces that we find throughout the city are not connected to the drains at all. Now, it's clear that the Harappan people were doing some fascinating experimentation, but most likely a smelly one. But this is part of our human past that is quite easy to forget, to be honest. And it's quite fun to read the research on it uh, with uh, scholars trying to uh, describe human waste as um, professionally as they can. But... It's not really toilets and sewage that brought us to this location from the start. The real reason we're here is, of course, due to the nuclear explosion that's supposed to have happened here. We hear again these strange claims about Mohenjo-Daro and the supposed ending of the town. Skeletons
1: were found in dead positions as though there was an instantaneous death. And some of those skeletons, as measured by Soviet scientists, had 50 times the normal radioactivity. They found pottery that had been fused. Then walls were heated to such an extent they became vitrified or glass-like, suggesting some sort of ancient nuclear weapon involved.
0: I'm just going to pause the episode here, and thank you, my dear listener, for tuning in. It's great having you here exploring the world of pseudoscience with me. If you want to support the cause of educating people and combating pseudoscience, I'd like if you become a Patreon or a paid subscriber of the show. For as little as 2.50 per episode, which is less than what the Loch Ness Monster asked for, you will help me continue producing high-quality content and gain access to a treasure trove of exclusive bonus material. Imagine. The benefits of becoming a paid subscriber where you gain VIP access to our exclusive pseudoscientific book club. You will have the opportunity to hear me read and discuss the works of our favorite on-screen experts for you. To sign up and become a paid subscriber, simply head over to diggingupancientaliens.com support. We will find all the information you need to join our community there. Your backing of the program would empower me to create more content that assists people while keeping the show as accessible as possible. So let's combat misinformation and pseudoscience together. Just head over to diggingupangentaneous.com support to sign up. Together, we will uncover the truth one episode at a time. So if you have been listening for a while or are familiar with these ideas, what you just heard is really nothing news. We have covered these claims in the past. So I will gloss over the skeletons in the street and the fused pottery and all that. Let us focus on where this claim originates, since I believe it can teach us a valuable lesson in approaching sources. Now, who was the first person to claim that Mohenjo-Daro was evidence for a nuclear explosion? While claim of atomic war appear in Morning of the Magicians, *Chariots of the Gods and the Twelfth Planet, and many other books, they're all based on misreading religious texts. Something we will return to a bit later in a different episode most likely. But Mohenjo-Daro is not mentioned at all until Charles Berlitz's 1972 book Mysteries of the Forgotten Worlds. Now Berlitz was an American linguist who uh, may have been most known for his writing on the Bermuda Triangle and the Philadelphia Experiment. But in his 1972 book Charles wrote on page 128 It ended in sudden conquest and ruin by invaders from the north in about 1500 BC. So suddenly that skeletons of the slaughtered inhabitants have been found preserved on the old street level. Note that we don't have a connection with a nuclear explosion yet. Atomic war is mentioned later in the book but it seems to build on the same mistranslation of the Mahatabara as von Daniken, Sitchin, Powell's and Bergers use in their books. Another author named Peter Colosimo or Pierre Domenico Colosimo as his real name was published in 1974 a book called Timeless Earth. In it, we find one of the earliest mentions of a futuristic web being the reason for the inhalation and doom of the city. Colossimo claims that no graves have been found in the city of Mohenjo-Daro, and why it was abandoned is unclear. Colossimo speculates that the most likely explanation for there not being a single dead body is due to a weapon that atomicized. The inhabitant, And due to the weapon's power, nothing was left at the end of the attack of those who once lived there. And in a later book called Doomsday 1999 AD, Berlitz again incorporated this narrative regarding the site, but changes the disintegration to something else. And on page 124, he writes... As if doom had come so swiftly that the inhabitants did not have time to get to their houses. These skeletons of the thousands of years are still among the most radioactive that has ever been found, on par with those of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. While Berlitz do not say it was an atomic bomb that had exploded, it’s evident from the text that we’re supposed to fill in this idea ourselves. David Hatcher Childress certainly did it and incorporated in his 1988 book Lost Cities of Ancient Lemuria and the Pacific. But note here that we have not gotten any source for the radioactive claim. Something that would change in 2000 when Childress released Technology of the Gods. And if you flip to page 238 we can find this little passage in a section dealing with the skeleton found at the site. Soviet scholars have found a skeleton at one site that had a radioactive level 50 times greater than normal. The Russian archaeologist A. Gorbovsky mentioned the high incidence of radiation associated with the skeletons in his 1966 book Riddles of Ancient History. And from this point, other authors will start to reference Russian scientists and Gorbovsky as a source for the radioactivity on the site. For example, Philip Coppens quoted Gorbovsky in a 2007 article named Best Evidence. The interesting part there is while Coppens don't reference Childress, Coppens have added another invented source. In the article, Philip Coppens claimed that an archaeologist named Francis Taylor said that there are depictions in a temple of people praying to be spared from a sort of green light. Well, there is no such depiction in Mohenjo-Daro, and I can't find any Francis Taylor that should have published anything on the site. I did find the archaeologist and numismatic one who studied coin, named George Francis Taylor. George Taylor was writing about Lebanon's historic temples, but not about Mohenjo-Daro. In later retellings from authorless blogs, a fictional foreman, Lee Hundley, joins the imaginary Francis Taylor. It's nice to see that archaeological, fictional archaeological digs gets Stefan to hire more staff. Now you might wonder how it is with the Russian archaeologist A Gorbowski. does he exist and the answer is yes he existed but Gorbovsky is not an archaeologist he was born in 1930 in Kiev and then part of the USSR and named Alexander Alfrédovich Gorbowski. And Alexander Gorbowski would go on to study at the Lomonosov Moscow State University, getting a degree as a linguist and oriental historian. Most of his scientific work covers modern history and linguistic studies. But Gorbowski seems to become increasingly interested in pseudoscience. So, in 1966, he published his first book on the subject called Sagatki Revenistei Histori. Or, if we would translate it to English, we get Mysteries of Ancient History. Sagatki can also mean Riddle Puzzle of Enigma, so Childress translation is not inherently wrong, but as My translation, in cooperation with Russians, uh, seems to lean more towards mysteries of ancient history rather than riddles. Splitting hair maybe, but let's continue. I also want to stress that there is no official translation into English of this book. That's why the title might change and depend on uh, whoever translates it. But the book covers a lot of the things that we are already very much familiar with, ranging from the race of a lost uh, giants, unexplained coincidences, world-ending disasters, and how Europeans are the source for culture in pre-colonial America. Reading the book, I get more of a Hancock vibe than Van Daniken or Sitchin. For example, there's Ideas similar to what Hancock presented in Gorbowski, but to be fair, they're not really original for both gorbovsky or Hancock and have been around for quite some time, even in 1966. Right, so Gorbowski did exist and he did write pseudoscientific texts, but Did he then claim that Mohenjo-Daro was evidence of a nuclear attack? And to find the answer to this, we need to go to the chapter called Skritje Znanya, or Hidden Knowledge. And the first paragraph on the chapter contains this quote, and it's translated by me and the help of a Russian friend. But it goes as, quote, Other findings are known that baffle researcher. In this regard, we can recall a discovery in India, a human skeleton, the radioactivity of which is 50 times higher than normal. See Problems of Space Biology, Volume 11, page 23. For the deposits found in the skeleton to have such high radioactivity, this man, who died 4,000 years ago, had to have eaten, editors knows, radioactive food for a long time the radioactivity of which should have been hundreds of times higher than usual. So it turns out that Gorbowski did not mention mohenjo at all, just a discovery that baffled scholars, according to the author. As you heard, we get a source for the radioactive skeleton, and the French researcher Philippe Hernandez did unearth the original article published by Lebendinsky and Nefedov called Problemi radiazonyi bezpasnocnyi kosmetskisk poletov, or in English, Problems of Radiation Safety in Space Flights. In the section that Gorbowski refers to, we can read the following. Again, this is my translation, again approved by a Russian, so should be fairly correct. For example, in areas of monocyte sand in India containing thorium, the total dose of radiation reaches... 600 MRM a year. An increase in the natural radiation background is also observed in high mountain regions, where the radiation dose can be two to three times higher than the dose at sea levels. From this point of view, paleo radiobiology data are of great interest. According to the recently obtained data of Mainiord, In the ribs of a man who lived more than 4,000 years ago, the radioactivity turned out to be 50 times greater than in contemporary humans, ranging from 3.4.10 to the power of 12 and 6.8.10 to the power of 14 curie per gram respectively. So the per- first part deals with natural radiation, something that we all deal with on a day-to-day basis. It does not matter what you do. Radiation is all around you and it's just part of nature. Remember kids, is the dose that makes the poison. And thorium is uh, compared to uranium, relatively common radioactive substance that can be found in, for example, monocytes. It is a phosphate mineral that reminds you a bit of sand in its color. And as the author notes, this mineral can be found in India, but also in the US, Norway, Australia, and well, in several different locations. But the authors are dealing with the issue of increased radiation due to elevation, of course. But I think they managed to get towards the end of this text a mistranslation in it. Now, the reason why these scientists are discussing this is the natural radiation level that increase with the elevation. So the higher up you are, the more radiation you will get just by nature itself. So if you intend to send people into space, this is a real issue that you have to deal with at one point or another. So this is the aim of the article itself. Now, the Mainyard in question is William Valentine Mainyard, a British physician and researcher, and in 1960 published the article Naturally Occurring Elf Activity in the publication The Hazards of a Man of Nuclear and Allied Radiations, a second report to the Medical Research Council. Mainyard writes in here, quote, it may be of interest that we have obtained from the British Museum the rib of an Egyptian who died almost 4,000 years ago. The total alpha activity is 0.34 UUC per gram in dried bone. So it turns out that Lebinsky and Nefedov made sort of a blunder somehow in their text. And Gorbovsky read this and did not in turn go and verify what they said was correct. Instead, he added a nationality to the skeleton, something Lebendinsky and Nefedov didn't mention in their text. So the highly radioactive Indian skeleton never existed. It was an Egyptian man with a lower alpha radiation level than compared to a Londoner or Inuit that... uh, Mainyard is comparing this rib to. So this should be more than enough to put this whole thing to bed. The radioactive claims regarding mohenjo is pure fiction. We have not yet solved how Childress who do not seem to speak Russian learned about this. It might be as Jason Kolovito points out propaganda out of Russia recycled by Hindu-nationalistic papers to support their agenda. Colavito have traced the claim to a copy of Illustrated Weekly of India, which reference another magazine called The Statesman, discussing Gorbowski's alleged finds. Colavito also points out that the USSR propaganda magazine Sputnik ran an article in issue number nine in 1986 called Riddles of Ancient History, written by Gorbowski. Neither Jason Kalavito or I have been able to locate a copy of this issue, but I feel it's quite likely that Childress is referencing this article in his 1988 book, meaning that Childress happily read and repeated USSR propaganda when trying to sell his books. Sure, he did add a few things and started to mix them with Berlitz and Colismo's ideas, but there were we have it, the bare truth, finally. But this shows the importance of uh, really reading what you're quoting. And we see this quite often in the pseudoscientific community. They cop each other without mentioning it and we never really double-check that they what they say is correct, while finding and translating sources in a different language was significantly harder 20 or 30 years ago. It's it was still possible to do, to be honest. Now, while looking into all of this and trying to work my way back to the origin, I noted that it's actually started to appear two camps regarding Mohenjo-Daro within the alternative history crowd itself. Not all seem to buy into the official alternative history story. Nick Redfern, for example, points out in his 2016 book, Weapons of the God, that quote, the biggest problem here is that there is no evidence that either city, editors note Harappa and Mohenjo-daro) was destroyed. Redfern also point out that some of the reporting, such as the quotes from Francis Taylor, does not exist. Now Redfern still believe that the radioactive skeletons are real. And while it might not have been from a nuclear blast... It could have been a power plant that broke down, for example, or that the explosion was much, much further away. But towards the end of the chapter, Nick do point out there is no objective evidence for any of this to be true. So in the next edition, it's clear that Nick now can write that the whole story is completely false. The evidence never existed from the start. And feel free to quote as much as you want, Nick. Just remember to cite your sources on it. So the lesson here is that we always should try to look at the original sources, especially for extraordinary claims. Are the source really saying what the authors say it does? especially on the internet, there does not have to be an evil intent. But for example, scientific journals can be hard to understand sometimes and people do make mistakes. So if we hear something that might be a bit too good to be true, we should go and look up the original source. It can be things we read on the news, on Wikipedia, and definitely, definitely what we read in these pseudoscientific texts from Childress burles. Von Daniken, Hancock, and all the other experts we meet in these shows. Now the rest of the episode is a mishmash of wrongly cited religious texts from India, Greece, Egypt, and other places. We also get more evolution and nihilism, of course, and here is the issue with the show. It constantly repeats itself. There is not much they can use without starting to fabricate it a bit too much, while but it is interesting to see how and what they are misquoted from these sources. We need to save something for later since the same things appear in later episode. To be honest, we don't miss much of the later part of the show. Take for example, uh, the discussion on Garuda, a Hindu demigod that function mainly as a mount for Vishnu. While maybe playing a more significant role in Hindu religion. Garuda can also be found in Buddhist and Jain religious texts, but the level of this discussion is borderline childish. Just listen to this quote by Giorgio Sukalos. Garuda was considered to be a snake killer. In fact, Garuda
1: needed to eat snakes in order to survive. Now compare an airplane at the airport today hooked up to a fuel line. Isn't that airplane eating a snake? If you see modern fighter jets take off in the middle of the night, there is smoke and fire coming out of the exhaust. It looks like a dragon. It looks like some type of a mythical creature, especially if you don't know what you're witnessing is nuts and bolts technology. So of course you're gonna liken it to a living creature. Those ancient aliens knew that our ancestors would worship them as gods because they knew that our ancestors, they didn't know it was technology. They thought it was magic, spirituality, divine intervention,
0: which it never was. Earlier, Giorgio stated that our ancestors were not stupid, but now they can't describe hose connected to an airplane. They can't difference between a living creature and an object. Would there not be aliens maybe talk? To talk with humans <laughs> explaining things to them claiming that people who obviously had language to describe things could not describe things accurately is, to be honest a quite lazy statement but this is the level we have for the rest of the episode so let's save the misquoted text for a later date and close the episode out for this time now remember that you should definitely go and leave a positive review anywhere you can. On iTunes, on Spotify, or even better, to your friends who you think might enjoy the show. I would also recommend visiting diggingupancientaliens.com to find more info about me and the podcast, of course. You can also find me on most social media sites. And if you have comments, questions, suggestions, or you want to write that all caps email, My contact info is on the website. You will also find all the sources and resources that I use to create this episode on the website. You will also find further reading suggestions if you want to learn more, of course. And check out the member section where you can find different ways to support the show and access the earliest eight episodes. The member area comes with a free and paid tier, depending on your level of commitment. Both of them are currently the same. Sander Mertelor created the intro music, and our outro is by the band called Troutsgrüb, who sings their song Tinfoil Hat. Links to both of these artists can be found in the show notes. Until next time, keep shoveling that science. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode. Remember that we have a subscription going on. You can become a patron or other subscriber for as little as two fifty per episode. Go to diggingupancientaliens.com/support. That is, go to diggingupancientaliens.com/support to read more information and sign up right there.